Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about transportation issues here in Los Angeles. From Lyft's upcoming IPO to the rideshare strike that happened this week, to congestion pricing studies, to Newsom's transportation funding stick, and the inherent dangers in being a pedestrian here in Los Angeles. Um, by the way, we've had an email address for a bit, but we keep forgetting to tell you guys about it. And uh, so if you've got any story ideas, tips, or other feedback for us, please feel free to send us a note to our email address. It's podcast at groundgamela.org. Again, that is podcast at groundgamela.org. We are super original with our email address naming here. We're organizers, not thing namers. So (laughs) let's go ahead and keep that in mind, everyone. Fair enough. Uh, How's it going? It's going well. I was going to say, also, you can follow us on the socials. Uh, I'm oh, at yeah. Bushido Scroll either on Facebook, on Instagram, or on Twitter. I uh, do most of my, like, shit posting, as it were, on the on the Twitters. <laughs> uh, Chris is also on there. Yeah, at Christopher Roth. It's, uh, again, just very original with the naming scheme here. Sorry. Again, you know, organizers, <laughs> not thing namers. Uh, but anyways, yeah, I was going to say, it's a pretty good week so far. Uh, a little bit hectic around the City Hall race for CD12. Yeah, uh, there's we've some, had some interesting stuff there. Yeah, we'll, we'll cover that next week. Um, but uh, this week, the, the one uh, not fun, but interesting thing I did was I went uh-huh. to the East Area... Progressive Democrats. Yep. Uh, they had a forum. They were supposed to have Jackie Lacey and Sheriff uh, Alex Villanueva. Uh, I went out there with the Black Lives Matter LA crew and allies uh, because we wanted to obviously ask pointed questions of Jackie Lacey because uh-huh. she should not get a comfortable platform anywhere she goes. Uh, she did not show up, uh, which we kind of like. This was a very interesting Twitter drama and also something that, like, there was some communications happening as far as the planning went. Yeah. And as soon as we decided, well, we heard that she wasn't doing it. As okay. soon as the call went out, the the action is off. We're not going to show up at this thing. Oh, Jackie Lacey immediately, so that's immediately that said, okay. "I'm going to be going." <laughs> so interesting. Like you're clearly listening to us, but not smart enough to know how to do counterintelligence, um, which is amazing. Like that's a pretty easy one. Uh, but anyways, we we did end up showing up. Uh, the crowd there was was pretty receptive to us when we we're at the door, passing out flyers and saying, "Hey, we want to ask pointed questions about this, that, and the other thing. Mainly, why you don't prosecute cops." And everyone seemed like. Pretty happy about that. Uh, they decided to give the balance of her time to uh, Villanueva, uh, who did a terrible job. He was so bad up there. The guy is so bad at public speaking, at being like a public figure and a politician. Uh, he got several ba- body blows, uh, you know, not physically, but from questions about people who died in L.A. custody. And especially uh, uh, Mondayan, the deputy who is just like the biggest scandal rocking that department right now, which should be a, a pretty pretty cut and dry. Like when there's video of you trying to break into a woman's house and you're on the record lying about that, you probably shouldn't be a sworn officer of the law. You know, it, it just it, that's a really, really, really bad look. Um, but overall, it went like pretty well. The, the EA uh, PD did like a decent job of trying to hold the forum together. People were not happy about the disruption, but I also think these are a lot of very mainstream people who don't understand deplatforming and don't understand that like no justice, no peace isn't just a tagline. It means if there's no justice, you don't get to peacefully talk to people. You have to deal with protesters and demonstrators until you change what you're doing wrong. And in this case, for Jackie Lacey, it's to prosecute cops who kill people or not run in 2020. Like if she just wants to decide to not run for her office again, not run for re-election, she'll probably get left alone. So maybe she could just run off into the desert like she did during that law enforcement marathon she just did or relay marathon. Fun. Yeah. So I was actually at the EAPD meeting uh, when Villanueva first 
came to uh, discuss his candidacy as sheriff. So this would have been last year. Yeah, last year. So I I was there for that meeting uh, to discuss... Uh, I was there for, I, I, honestly, I forget what the, what the pretense of my yeah. uh, being at that meeting in particular was, but he was there and he made his case and the, the crowd was pretty receptive to him at that point in time. So uh, it's interesting to see how once he actually got into office and his true colors were revealed, uh, things have shifted a little bit. So I thought it would I mean, be... But, but I would like to point out, Nock was calling this from day one. We kept saying to everyone, he's a cop, don't trust him. And it turned out, surprise, the guy dressed in a cop uniform is in fact a cop. Yeah, so it's also worth pointing out a, a quick quote here from the Los Angeles Times relating to um, that, that incident that we were talking about with Mandayan when he was breaking into the uh, home of his, uh, I guess it was his girlfriend who was also a sheriff's deputy. Um, quote, at a news conference Wednesday, Villanueva addressed the controversy over Mondeon's reinstatement, saying the uproar is being driven by those politically opposed to him. He said that he stands by his decision and that it had nothing to do with Mondeon's work on his campaign. See, at the EAPD thing, he uh, his dodge there was, OK, we can't just get rid of Mondeon because then he'll turn around and fire or he'll turn around and sue us. And he- <laughs> as though the like threat of litigation is going to outweigh, like, A, somebody feeling safe in their home from yeah. having a guy with a literal badge and gun try and break in, and also B, that that's any sort of decision calculus because we wouldn't have to fire him again if you hadn't rehired him. Yeah. Like, it, this is entirely a problem it, of Alex Villanueva's <laughs> own making. This is this is what uh, Twitter would consider to be a self-own, as it were, because why the hell did we put ourselves into this situation if it weren't for the fact that Mondayan was your driver during the election? Yeah. I refuse to accept... Villanueva's excuse that it has nothing to do with his contributions during the campaign. Mondayan was out there as one of his core uh, lieutenants, as it were, to like rally the support of the troops from the the sheriff's deputies uh, associations and whatnot. And that probably was one of the key factors in getting Villanueva elected oh, in yeah, the first he, place. Oh, yeah, he whipped the, the deputies yeah. uh, union to uh, to vote for Villanueva. And that that was a huge win because nobody was sure which way they were going to go. They generally side with the boss. So that was a big sea change to be like, oh, the deputies union, at least, is throwing their weight behind this insurgent uh, challenger. Yeah. By the way, so there, there were multiple videos that were released as part of this whole process yeah. of like him like trying to jimmy a, a, a piece of metal equipment underneath a sliding glass door to sneak he in. He looks so dumb when he realizes that a camera's pointed at him. He just has this like oh, hand huh? in the cookie what? jar yeah, f- look on his face and he's still jimmying the door. He just like he doesn't stop what he's doing. He just looks at the camera stupidly and you're like... Uh. You are not the sharpest knife in the drawer, are why? you, sir? Why is he still involved? Why Why? Why does he have a job? Well, it's also one of those few times where, like, the county board has been pretty, like, you know, stern on what they want to do, and the sheriff is pushing back, and it's costing him a lot of political capital. Um, you know, don't forget, we get to reelect our sheriff in a few years, so maybe we get to change out another one. Well, maybe he'll resign first. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah. So e- EAPD was uh, interesting, uh, but our politicians are still cowards and you should yell at them every chance you get. Keep yelling. Keep being mad. But let's go ahead and get this uh, deep dive started. Kind of yeah. the, the frame we're going to start off with is Lyft's IPO. So let's go ahead and like run through the facts. And then like, since I kind of grew up on the floor of a hedge fund, I'm going to throw in some like weird analysis that you may not be thinking about that only makes sense uh, in terms of the stock market, which I want to say out, out front is really <laughs> effing stupid. Like it is the, the world's biggest gambling parlor and it is completely rigged against you. So with that in mind, let's talk about how the Lyft executives are going to get super fucking rich. Yeah. Okay. So basically what we're looking at here is a projected value of 68 to $72 per share, which makes 
this one of the most expensive IPOs to ever happen. Yeah, uh, we're looking at about twenty billion, twenty and a half billion market cap if they when they sell all of those shares. And that's that's actually some uh, higher projections. Like if they go at seventy two dollars a share, it'll be twenty billion dollar IPO. If it's sixty eight, it's going to be slightly less, like in the sixteen to seventeen billion dollar range, mm-hmm. which like. That's still billions of dollars. That's double what LA's operating budget is just in one stock purchase. Yeah, and uh, so Lyft has said that it earned um, $2.2 billion in revenue last year, which is double what it made in 2017. So they're growing really very, very quickly. But there's a caveat to that because just like Uber, they are still operating increasingly at a loss. Uh, They reported a net loss of $911.3 million in 2018 compared with $688.3 million the year before. And this really like gets into what uh, kind of is the shell game of this yeah, the stock market. And we began to see this in like the 2000s when you had P.E. ratios of like 30 to 1. And a P.E. ratio, <laughs> for those who don't know, is a way of determining the value of a stock based on the price of a share of stock versus the earnings per share of stock. So if you have a P.E. ratio of 1 to 1, it means that for every dollar you're buying in stock, there's a dollar worth of earnings. Wait, wait, what's the P.E. ratio of Tesla? Oh, I, I don't even know. It's it's insane. It's it's pretty high up there. Now, for most stocks, even well-valued stocks, you're looking at a P.E. ratio of like 5 or 10 to 1. So that means for every $10 in stock, there's a dollar in earnings. But you're basing that on future earnings and growth and how that stock's going to mature. Uh, for stocks like Pets.com back in the day, they had like P.E. ratios of 34 to 1, which is just absolutely insane. That means that you're paying $34 for one share of stock for every dollar worth of earnings. Uh, Not a really, really good bargain or a good plan in the long run, but we're looking at you know, that sort of playing out again, where you have companies like Uber that's supposedly worth $50 billion and has never turned a profit, never had a profitable year. They're literally just a black hole for venture capital. So just as a quick side note, uh, seeing as I did mention Tesla earlier, uh, I looked it up on Nasdaq.com while you were talking and they've got 43.2 to 1. Oh, shit. I didn't realize it was that insane. Yeah, that's 43 their, to 1. That's, Damn. That's their 2020 estimates for PE. That's so painful. That's so painful. Definitely not a bubble there in any way whatsoever. Um, So, (laughs) whoo. Okay. Anyway, uh, Lyft is uh, apparently working to promote uh, some kind of like an an image reform with all of this because they're trying to uh, basically reward loyalty in their driver base, where they're giving everyone who's a veteran driver an opportunity to cash in for some kind of a loyalty bonus, where if you've got more than 10,000 rides, then you're going to be ineligible for a cash bonus of $1,000, which can be used to purchase stock at the IPO price. Uh, so congratulations, everyone who's done 10,000 rides or more. You can get 15 shares of stock. Uh, yep. And the fun thing with these IPOs, because this seems like a good uh, a good plan, right? Because I'm not sure – like I would imagine that this $1,000 used to buy the stock will probably be buying it at the lower level that like the executives and actual employees at a company buying because that's how you make money from an IPO. So the, the IPO, the way it works is you have all of this stock owned by employees, owned by the actual corporation itself that has been bought or valued at a certain level. Like let, for, for the sake of argument here, let's say $20 a share. So the CEO is able to get compensation where he's got like 
let's say 10,000 shares at $20 a share. So that's like $200,000 worth of stock. When the stock gets sold or when it goes to the market and immediately gets priced up to $72 a share, he cashes out at $52 a share earnings for every single one of those shares of stock. So uh, 52 times 200,000 is a couple million dollars there, right? Like he has more than doubled his money. He has exponentially increased his wealth just through this one sale of the stock. And then once the stock's out of his hands, it doesn't matter what happens. He gets to bank that cash. So suddenly the executives and the employees of the company don't have an incentive to keep the stock price high because they were able to cash out at the beginning. Now, there are some limits on this that were brought in, especially after the tech bubble burst, because the SEC and the FEC realized, oh, wait, well, sorry, not the FEC, the FDIC and the SEC realized, oh, this is really unstable because you just have executives building these vaporware companies. You get past the IPO and the whole thing can collapse as, you know, like the house of cards it is without affecting the people who caused that because you've already cashed out. You already have cash in hand. So you can't sell all of your stock up front. You have to hold a certain percentage of it. But even then, we're talking about people at such astronomical wealth levels that they can afford to pay a penalty and still cash out. Yeah, I think it was um, the the estimates I was seeing that the, the co-founders of Lyft are going to be worth a few hundred million dollars and that the uh, CEO of Uber, which, by the way, is also looking at doing an IPO very soon, um, is going to be in like the five to seven billion dollar range as a result yeah. of that uh, potential pricing out there. Uh, also, quick side note, I think you did your math based on the value versus the number of shares, but we can don't worry about that. Yeah, it's, whatever. It I'm, it, it, we're <laughs> back of the napkin math, and I left my mat and I left my napkin at the restaurant. So. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, so this, but like you were saying, like this is very much reminiscent of what we saw back in the 2000 era dot com bubble for things like pets dot com. Um, and in, as you pointed out, like back then, it was a lot of retail investors, oh, yeah. right? I, it was yeah. mom and so pops. So it'd be 52, 000, 52 times ten thousand. Yeah, there yeah, we yeah go. don't worry yeah, about yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> you did the math. Um, but back then, we were seeing a lot of retail investors, like mom and pops, who were being misled by their stockbrokers to invest in all these risky startups under the premise of massive short-term profits with little to no risk. Where have we seen this before? Um, but of course, this time around, things are a little bit different. It's mostly like it's basically exclusively institutional corporate investors who are going to be looking to get into the game with these unicorns in the tech space, which, by the way, that is the bizarre name that they just decided to start using for all of these multi-billion dollar IPO. They, they should have gone for like Centaur or some other sort of interesting <laughs> mythical creature. But th this really does tie into something that's super important to be thinking about when we, we talk about like growth and how like these tech companies and these gig economy companies are going to be growing over the next few years because back in the 2000s, like you were saying, it was retail investors. It was yeah. people who like, oh, I have a stock broker who says buy this stock. I've got like a bonus at work. I have some extra cash. I just refinanced the house. I've got cash. These were the people buying the stock market. Now, retail investing isn't the big thing. A lot of people are in index funds. A lot of people with their 401ks are in uh, not actively managed funds. So you're basically just tracking an index. You buy in once, and you're not really selling or trading those stocks. You're just sort of like sitting on a fund that's tracking an index or is made up of a, a whole bunch of fund, uh, stocks through a mutual fund. Yeah. So the people that will be buying this are corporations looking for a place to stash their cash uh, because they can no longer do stock buybacks because that's where all of the growth in the stock market over the last two years has been. It's been exclusively in stock buybacks, uh, which is great because that means that literally 
Suddenly companies are just pumping up the price of their own shares by taking the money that they're earning and not putting into workers or equipment or growth, but rather just like making the company on paper be worth more. Wait, are you saying that this quantitative easing process by which we've pumped billions and billions and billions of dollars into the economy of money that we just basically created out of nowhere uh, and then also granting these massive trillion dollar tax cuts to large uh, earners and corporate CEOs well, and letting and them repatriate some of their money. Yeah. Like all of when Reagan did that, when he allowed companies to repatriate in the eighties, it allowed it just fueled stock buybacks, which led to corporate earnings going like <laughs> through the roof, while we kept seeing like wages and actual like <laughs> workers' earnings stagnate or go down. So we've seen this cycle before. Like it's just going to happen again. Only this time, like we don't actually have a robust economy to catch us when the stock market implodes and they fire everyone. Uh, and it, these really complicated systems we have, I'm not going to go too deep into this uh, because this could like go on for it's, days. Yeah. But when you see like when you realize that most of uh, the way that companies do their payments and pay for invoices and pay for workers isn't that they have the cash on hand, but they they use what's called commercial paper for short term loans to cover mm-hmm. that stuff. The, the commercial paper market froze up in 2008 and like UPS literally had to go to the White House and be like, we're about to fire like several hundred thousand people because we can't make payroll without the commercial paper market when Lehman went under. That could happen again because all of the corporations are going to tie up all of their liquidity in stocks that are going to, quote, keep growing. And it's it's really messy. And like the, the, the Lyft IPO, I think, is is the perfect example of how the gig economy is basically going to destroy us because it just keeps hollowing out value. And there's not much more value to be hollowed out. Like this is the fracking of the financial world that we're watching here. Yeah. And as we go like deeper into this through the, the labor fight and everything, it gets really bad. Like ultimately – if you're not a billionaire in this economy, you're poor. Yes. Uh, by the way, if you guys haven't uh, checked out the dollop, which we mention frequently here, there is an incredible episode about Uber and about specifically the CEO of Uber. And if you still like Uber after listening to that episode, then I I, I genuinely don't know what to say. I'm going to have to look <laughs> up. Uh, Kendall will be going on there soon or oh, has really? been on there recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, she was on Struggle Session. She She's also going to be on this weekend. Uh, if you're listening Saturday, nice. she's on the podcast interview. Uh, but yeah, she'll be on the dollop. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk about this Lyft and Uber strike because yeah. this is weird because like – they're not technically employees. There are some fixes in the the way to do that or, or, or coming down the line, hopefully. But a bunch of, of drivers, uh, not just in California, but across the nation, went on strike only for 24 hours, which basically means them not logging into their app. So 25 yeah, hours. 25 hours. Details. All right, fair enough. Let's, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk about what that looked like. Yeah, so that was all surrounding um, – so that happened on Monday, and it was uh, specifically uh, in California, at least. It was about a, a protest by the workers um, of effectively like they were protesting over a 25% cut in their mileage wages. So uh, it was organized by in part by the rideshare drivers United as well as the gig workers rising. Um, Previously drivers were making 80 cents per mile traveled uh, but now that's been cut down to 60 cents per mile by Uber. Uh, the IRS, by the way, puts the standard operating cost of a car on the road at 58 cents a mile, uh, as far as yeah. your taxes are concerned, which means that these drivers are now receiving just two cents per mile in income for every mile that they're driving. And that includes like all of your maintenance, your oil yeah. changes, your gas, your tires. So that's, you know, for every mile you go on a, a U.S. street, you're spending 58 cents. Now, this is for the entire U.S., 
Here in California, you're actually looking at a cost of, I want to say, 70 cents a mile because our roads are in such poor condition and we're yeah. paying a lot more for gas than you are out in like Ohio or something. So here in California, that market's even more distended. If you're only making 60 cents uh, per you're mile driven here in California, you're, yeah, you're literally losing money. Wow. Cause, yeah. And that's just on maintenance and gas. That's not even on like trying to turn a profit to feed yourself. That's literally just maintaining the capital that is the car. Yeah, because the the roads here eat suspensions, they eat tires, they eat wheels. Like in LA, you spend fifteen hundred dollars a year in extra maintenance just because our roads are so crappy. Now that may not happen every year. It's more likely that that'll all be like loaded onto you in one big like maintenance when bill everything when you fails. like <laughs> yeah, or when you hit a big enough pothole and like throw your axle out of alignment yeah. and blow a tire and all of that other stuff. But you're already paying a lot just to subsidize our crappy roads. Yeah. So driver Mustafa Makland, who's thirty six and drives for both. Uber and Lyft said that instead of sharing a little bit of the money with the drivers, uh, they're not sharing anything with drivers. Instead, they're decreasing how much they pay. That was all yeah. in relation to the IPO. And so at this point, it, uh, about a year ago, maybe two years ago, uh, Lyft was paying uh, about uh, 82% of each ride went to the drivers and and 18% went to Lyft. Now it's about 27% goes to Lyft and 73% goes to the driver. And that's been like they've been re- uh, kind of doing that formula as they as they go, but Lyft used to be, they're they're trying to write a balance between making it really cheap for the consumers so they can pick up more rides yeah. and more riders, uh, but also like drivers need to eat and are human, uh, and this is also what we're seeing where there's this displacement of the maintenance of capital is being taken away from the companies because. Like when I drove a cab, yeah, uh, I worked for the company. What they kept trying to push me to do was to go work for what they called an owner-operator, so a guy who owned a fleet of like seven or eight cabs, because mm-hmm. then he was responsible for maintaining the capital. If the company can offload the cost of insurance, the cost of maintenance on those cars, any of those costs onto the driver, it makes it way cheaper for them because then basically all Lyft is getting paid for or having to pay for is the development and maintenance of this app. They don't cover insurance for drivers. Uh, most drivers that are, are own their own car have to get a special rider from their policy because if you're driving more, you're more likely to be in an accident. When you're doing one of those like lease-to-work schemes where you basically just go pick up a car that's oh, made yeah. for Lyft I use, they were doing the insurance those. is included in that, but that means you're paying for that as part of that lease every day. So you have a minimum that you have to hit. So like when I drove a cab – the first $80 I made just went to leasing the cab to pay for insurance and maintenance and all that other stuff. I had to pay for my own gas. So every day I had to be making at least about $120 a day or I wasn't making money that day because like when I turn the car in at the end of the day, I have to pay 80 bucks. So it's kind of like indentured servitude, but not quite like indentured or is it? Basically, but indentured servitude where like you're also (laughs) having to pay for the ox. Like the ox belongs (laughs) to you and you're responsible if it dies, not that it's the Lord's ox. Like it's an even more perverted sense of like feudalism where you have to be able to buy in. You have to have like your own money to buy the capital to be able to get this job, which generally like if you've ever looked at a job board, they're like, hey, if somebody wants you to buy something before you get a job, it's probably a scam. Don't don't do it. Um, So this is also all kinds coming as a couple of things are happening. So Lyft and Uber are also facing down new legislation here in California based upon a sweeping court decision that curbs employers' ability to use independent contractors. You know, that whole 1099 thing that 
lots of people in LA are used to. Uh, and the new is, the new law is very much unlikely to exempt Uber, Lyft, and other app-based technology companies uh, from that regulation. So good news for the workers there, not yeah. so good news for the companies. But this is also one reason why, like you, you know, I prefer Lyft uh, to Uber yeah. just because I find them slightly less evil. But even then, it's a it's a distinction that's really splitting hairs. It really is at this point. Um, hairs as fine as my balding head, you know. <laughs> uh, but it, it's also one where both Lyft and Uber have invested heavily in driverless car technology. Yes, they have. Uber owns their own company out, in, which has been field testing in Arizona, and where they killed killing a couple people, of people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lyft decided not to start. They didn't want to pay the fees to do it here in California. Well, not only that, but there's actually like when people are doing this job and they've they've charted this because there are cameras in there that can see what you're doing. If you're in a car for eight hours a day that's driving itself around, you're not picking up passengers. You're just like testing it. You get bored after two hours. You're going to get onto your phone. You're going to read a book. You're going to stare off into the distance because there's nothing to keep you engaged driving. So that's what happened there was the person who was supposed to be the safety driver wasn't paying attention because sitting still in a car that drives itself for six hours is boring AF. You will not stay engaged. They've done studies on this and found that like people – get bored, they get distracted, their mind wants something else to do. And if that car is not able to completely control itself, that's how people die. But this also points to the fact that like Lyft and Uber ultimately want to cut the driver out, which has been their selling point. Like Lyft is is trying to sell itself as a service where like, oh, you can make extra money. You can have a part-time job that you set the schedule. Oh, you're an artist and you need flexible hours. Here's a job ready made for that. Well, if you don't need drivers, then drivers aren't getting paid. And this is ultimately a way to try and cut people out of that uh, ecosystem entirely and just give money directly to the capitalists. Like why even bother having employees when you can just hook up a, a vacuum from a capitalist's like bag to your pocket and just suck money directly to the billionaires. And that's the plan here. That's literally what the robots are for. Yeah. Um, as a quick side note, with, when we're talking about why they're trying to displace these workers uh, with robotics, with AI, that's uh, because classifying workers as employees, which would replace them from being 1099s, requires that the employers, uh, these companies, pay for overtime, Social Security, Medicare taxes, workers' compensation, uh, unemployment, disability insurance, and other benefits like family leave and sick pay, which adds about 30% more to the labor costs. Yeah, and I mean, you know, until we unionize the robots. <laughs> oh, but boy. It, 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 <laughs> it really, like, drives to the heart of where this gig economy stuff is taking us when yes. there are fewer and fewer jobs out there for people to, like, regular people to have that pay benefits. You really can't survive on Uber and Lyft. They say that they'll pay you 15 to $18 an hour. Uh, yeah, maybe I was if you're working things where people were making like 375 an hour. Exactly. Like those are based on weird projections and also yeah. leave out all the maintenance, the gas that you're paying for, like all of this other stuff that traditionally other companies would take care of. You know, Greyhound doesn't make their drivers no. pay for the bus and then pay for the gas to get between like Albuquerque and Los Angeles. Like it just it doesn't happen. So these are new vulture business models that have unfortunately taken over a lot of stuff and really kind of like made things on the road worse, right? Because Absolutely. the idea with ride-sharing companies, at least as they're sold to us, is, oh, you don't have to worry about all these single-person cars driving around because now the cars are always going to have a driver. Guess what? 
50 to 60% of the time, that car is empty and just driving around burning fossil fuels and making emissions, not because it has a passenger, but because it's trying to get from A to B to pick up a passenger or waiting for a ride or any of that other fun stuff. Which and means that it's basically doubling the amount of time that that car is on the road, which more than makes up for the fact that you're not driving. Exactly. And like Lyft has, and I think Uber does this too, where they talk about like carbon offsets and A, the pollution's still happening. Oh, yeah. But it also raises this question about like where these costs are going. So, and when we look at plans like London, where they are trying to do what they are doing, yes, congestion pricing, pricing, and they are doing that in New York or looking into it. They're thinking about maybe bringing that to the West side because like the population of Santa Monica basically triples during a work day because very few people live there comparatively and a hell of a lot of people commute in to work for Google and Yahoo and all of the other big companies that have moved in there. But my question as we move down this line is who would pay the congestion pricing when you're in a lift? Like, is it going to be the company? No. It's going to be the driver and the passenger. So let's talk about this congestion pricing plan, which probably won't do anything to get ride shares off the road. And we'll probably increase the share of them going into places like Santa Monica. Yeah. So a uh, quick note on this. This is a, a study, not a plan. Um, people have pointed that out repeatedly because it is uh, uh, extremely controversial and it's going to take a lot of political capital. And I mean, it is being pushed as a plan, though. Like, it's yes. just a study saying this could work, but that's to set up for the policy that's supposed to follow through. Yeah, that is that is very true. So uh, anyway, this, this study came out, uh, I believe it was Thursday this week, so today, uh, suggesting that implementing a rush hour congestion pricing scheme in a small portion of the west side, uh, a portion that is just north of the 10, uh, just west of the 405 with sunset at the north end, uh, could reduce traffic in the area by 20 percent. Uh, the study and that is the, that's a very wealthy part of the West Side. They're yes, specifically it, oh, talking about like that. That wealthy. is a single family home, heavy part of the West Side, but also has some large campuses like the Water Gardens yep. uh, in Santa Monica around Cloverdale. A lot of big companies are in there. Uh, Universal, MTV, like companies with a lot of employees. So even though this is like a wealthy single family home area during the weekdays, it's a lot of like young tech workers. Yeah. So the study came out of the California Association of Governments and it was released this Thursday. Uh, it's worth noting that this area does include a section of the Expo line, so it's not completely devoid of transit. But of course, bus coverage in the area could absolutely be improved. Um, the charge, Which I, I will say, like I, I do like the big blue buses; they're they're no, pretty they're, good. They're, they're yeah. not bad, uh, but we still need more of them, and we yes. really need them in like protected bus lanes so that they can go through the traffic, or rather that they can go around the traffic entirely and make everybody who's sitting in their car stuck in traffic say, "Wow, wouldn't it be great if I was riding on the bus and not stuck here, moving at." two miles an hour. Only if they pull over and impound immediately every BMW that cheats during rush hour and gets itself in the lane and then speeds. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Make them so that there's like a curb between them so that they'd have to like absolutely screw up their fender in the process. Um, oh and and uh, so many angry BMW no, owners trying to sue the city so, over so that suddenly. The, I, I heard that the, I, I need to confirm this and I feel bad reporting that it's like a, a rumor that I had just heard, but somebody was telling me uh, in this last week that buses in San Francisco have cameras on them. Oh, that was me telling that was you that. You. Okay, yeah. yeah, so the yeah. cameras take the picture of the people as they're yeah, blocking like if, bus stops. You yeah, can so totally if, do that with the bus lanes. Yeah, in, in San Francisco, if you're in a bus stop and the bus pulls up behind you, uh, you don't have to you wait a for a, a, a <laughs> police officer or anyone to show up and ticket you. The bus has a camera, takes a photo of your license plate and of your car, and then they just mail you a ticket. And like, as much as I'm not a huge fan of like automated cameras like that, <laughs> as somebody 
uh, who's a pedestrian and a cyclist on the road and a bus driver. That is kind of the enforcement that I am, like, okay with because it's a very easy correction. It's also one where, like, get the hell out of the bus stop. Like, it's like when you see somebody parking in a handicapped spot. You're like, you don't need that spot. It's there for a very specific purpose. Get the hell away from it. Um, And so, yeah, I I have very little sympathy for people who do that. At the same time, like, I know here in L.A., we don't have good pickup and drop-off spots. No, we need more of them. Yeah, so when, like, we roll up and see, like, what's clearly a family minivan – dropping somebody off to catch a bus to go to work like i don't want that person necessarily getting a ticket i want thus to, uh, i want thus <laughs> i want us to have a better way to engineer that street so that they don't have to block that lane and the city could do that they just need to spend the time and energy to do it you know do the work come on ha uh yeah so getting back to this the charge yeah, kind of went on a, a, we, a, a tangent there. a little bit uh so the charge here uh this toll uh according to the study would only be effective during rush hour in order to encourage drivers to use alternate transportation modes or to avoid the area altogether in reporting from the la times the study found that Quote, such a drop in driving would correspond to a 9% increase in transit ridership, a 7% increase in biking, and a 7% increase in walking within inside the zone. Um, this study is effectively, it really does support what congestion pricing advocates have been saying for years. Uh, this works. And it's, it's worked exactly the way that they're predicting in the study uh, in London, in Milan, and in Stockholm, where similar schemes have already been implemented. Uh, it's also important to note that this isn't technically a policy plan yet it is just a model and it's uh and before any kind of a service street congestion charge system could be rolled out we would need to do a bunch of stuff including amending state law so that we can actually allow for the charging of tolls on uh service level streets uh we'd have to be doing a whole lot of outreach to the community uh and the officials would uh, the city officials would need to determine who it is that's going to be setting up the plan and the the pricing strategy in order to maximize its well and this also and like as we talk a little bit about what Mike Bonin had to say on this it, yeah. it kind of hits <laughs> It really drives home this point that like I'm one reason I'm really excited to to organize with like uh, Sunrise around the Green New Deal is uh, and I think Kevin DeLeon put it really, really well when he came to our town hall and was like, we can't just decarbonize the West Side, like having everyone in Santa Monica in Teslas and in green cars and making it easy for them to get around doesn't help. We have to make it harder to drive. We have to make that the less appealing option. We can't just do that by making it more expensive because that's always going to hit the working class. Those are the people who can't afford to get rid of their cars and get a new clean car. Those are the people who have to get around to work and are more dependent on that paycheck. They can't take they may not have flex schedules available. They have childcare and all that other stuff. We can't punish the worker in order to decarbonize the environment. We have to be providing them an option, a yes and, even though I hate improv. (laughs) I think it's a good way of putting it. We can't just be saying, don't drive. We have to be saying, here's a better, cheaper, more effective alternative to driving. And that's kind of where these plans hit the wall is they come with like, hey, we'll do this congestion pricing and that will cut down on like cars coming into Santa Monica. Great, but who's it going to hit and what's the solve beyond that? And generally these plans aren't taking that next step. But Bonin had like a really good, you know, kind of issue talking about that. And he's, for a guy who represents like an area that has a lot of economic disparity in it, because there are poorer parts of CD11, uh, especially as it like stretches out towards like unincorporated Inglewood and stuff, which aren't technically in his district, but still get services from the city and he interacts with, you have to set that offset that with like the incredibly wealthy Santa Monica and Malibu areas where like those people will be a little bit mad, but like a guy who owns a house on PCH 
paying $4 to get into and out of his house ain't going to break him. No. Somebody who's going to work for like $12 an hour, that $4, well, you know, maybe $8 a day that they're paying, uh, depending on when they're commuting, yeah. could really take a huge sizable chunk out of their paycheck, you know, especially when you amortize that. Absolutely. But what what his, his first point um, that we're going to talk about here is that this is going to be running into a massive uphill fight because – uh, though that person who lives on a house on the PCH and won't care about that $4 uh, per uh, transaction that's going to be associated with this, they're still going to complain like hell about it because that's what they do. So Mike Bonin uh, told the LA Times that, quote, if you're going to pick an area of the city to do this, history suggests that people on the west side have the means and the resources and the time to object to stuff that they don't like. Absent a very different approach to this, I think it would be a very controversial idea. I think that my, my, my two cents on this is I think that Bonin is referring there to the road diets yeah, and the fact yeah. that everybody there was like a, there was a campaign that was launched to recall him as a response of to people uh, losing their extra lane down on uh, Venice, wasn't it? Yeah, in Mar Vista. In Mar Vista, yeah. yeah. So they're in, in Playa del Rey. I mean, a, a well. lane on each side. Yeah, but I mean, it was all done in order to protect pedestrians and protect cyclists and make it a safer environment so people don't die. But everybody got really upset that their commutes got longer. Well, and the 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 my fig and like the spring project are both yeah. like kind of like as a as a cyclist in downtown, I appreciate that they're trying. Uh, but at the same time, <laughs> it's it's you know when I'm trying to like transition oh, onto Figueroa like right by the Staples Center yeah. and the Convention Center, there's like lifts parked on the the bike oh, lane yeah. there because there's no good place for them to pick up passengers. They've done a terrible job of creating multimodal streets, and this is something that like. We really have to consider um, when we're talking about like Newsom's plan where he wants to tie housing funding to – or sorry, transportation funding to housing development because we're looking at these weird ideas where we need to build more housing and then trying to threaten cities whose infrastructure is already underserved uh, with less money to fix that because they're not building enough market rate housing at this point is really kind of insane and is just going to exasperate these problems. Yeah. So speaking of Newsom's transportation funding issue, uh, back in his first week in office, Gavin Governor, Gav, Governor, Governor Newsom. Newsom. Oh my God! Now I'm. You did it before, and now I've picked it up. Ugh. We're gonna make it stick, folks. We're gonna make it stick. Uh, he made a threat to withhold transportation funding from cities who weren't meeting their state-imposed housing goals. Uh, this threat met, of course, with the media backlash, not least of which because the methodology for determining those housing goals is fairly opaque and seemingly arbitrary. And doesn't really take locality into uh, into uh, any of its calculations. It's more just like every city should build this much housing and doesn't really look at market rates, doesn't look at demand, doesn't look at like underlying economic factors. It's a very silly one-size-fits-all. Yeah, and so the encapsulation of the silliest parts of this is that uh, Beverly Hills was credited with meeting their affordable housing uh, projections last uh, in 2017, uh, but their target was three units of construction, one very low-income housing unit, one low-income housing unit, and one moderately-priced housing unit. Uh, they actually ended up building three times what they needed uh, by building nine affordable units in total, which blew those expectations out of the water, though none of them fell into the very low-income category. Uh, by the way, they also were not required to build any new high-income housing, but they did so anyway, issuing 75 new permits in that category. Fantastic. Yeah. So back to Newsom. When he released his budget figures back in January, he said that, quote, if you're not hitting your goals, I don't know why you get the money. Uh, referring, of course, to the funding associated with the increased gas tax that survived the repeal effort that came out of Orange County last year. Well, it's also one where you realize not 
maintaining your transportation infrastructure is just going to gut the economic base there oh, even yeah. more. Like you're putting people who are economically disadvantaged and already paying through the nose to fix their cars because the streets suck in even worse position. Like now they're looking at A, not getting new affordable housing and B, having streets that continue to suck. Yes. So, by the way, we've had a law in place for the last 50 years that's required that cities up and down the state build enough housing so that their residents can live affordably. Obviously, this is not working. Uh, so Newsom had initially proposed using transportation funds as leverage to change that. But as a result, he has faced a significant amount of backlash from legislators in both parties. In recent moves, Newsom, Newsom has pushed back the timeline for this implementation uh, of these penalties back to 2023, which is uh, oddly uh, a year after the end of his current term in office. Weird. Weird. So, Almost like he wants to delay it so nobody will vote against him. Yeah, it's like kicking that can. Anyway, uh, but even with those extended implementation timeframes headed up there, uh, Senator James Bell, who represents San Jose and was one of the authors of that gas tax legislation um, back in 2016-2017, uh, came out strongly opposed to Newsom's plan, stating flatly that, quote, their use for any other purpose, such as to be used as leverage, is a violation of the trust of the voters and taxpayers. Yeah, because SB1 was very clear this money is only supposed to be used for transportation infrastructure up and down the state to fix our roads and our highways. That was why Prop uh, 6 was such a, yeah. uh, you know, well, it, that was a weird one. The, the GOP came out hard for it at first, and then when it got on the ballot, they like forgot about it. I think mainly because it's impossible to justify repealing the gas tax at this point. Like, until we get rid of Prop 13, we need the gas tax just to keep our roads from falling apart even more. And they already are all just in a horrible state of despair. Yeah, yeah here in LA, literally, I, I believe, you know, 40% of our roads are failing. Yeah. And the city council has adopted uh, a stance, and they, they adopted this a while ago, uh, that if a road is below a C grade, and it, it, we have teams of engineers that go out and, you know, survey the roads and then rate them on an A to F scale as to, like, where they fall. But if you have a road that's a C minus or below, we don't even try and fix it. We've literally said that road is too expensive to fix, so we're just going to let it keep failing. So we're only upkeeping roads that are already in good condition, which means they're probably not traveled a lot. So we're probably talking about roads like in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, single family home neighborhoods where it's just traffic at the beginning and the end of the day that doesn't have truck traffic well, or bus traffic I mean, on it. Both of those cities just do their own roads. Well, yeah, but I mean, for instance, even yes. here in L.A., you know, like if you're in Larchmont where it's yeah, like single yeah, family yeah. homes and you don't have a lot of bus traffic on some of those smaller roads, like that road's going to be in good condition. You're talking about, uh, you know, like Normandy when you get south of USC, that road is torn up to hell because there's trucks and there's buses and there's a lot of cars. Or look at Olympic and Wilshire as they run across the city through Koreatown and everything else. Well, the Wilshire's getting some love because of the train. That's true. That, so it's getting touched up there. But there's other parts like Olympic. I used to try and ride my bike from no, Koreatown bad, to bad Beverly idea. Hills down down Olympic. Oh. And it was, you know, do I want to get crushed by a bus or do I want to, like, have the front wheel of my bicycle go into this, like, car-eating pothole that's sitting in the street? Um, and it gets scary because at some point, you know, I've been riding the roads here in L.A. for over a decade, and there are just some roads like, you know where that pothole is, and it it's still there a decade later. It's it's still there. It's getting a little bit better, at least on the west side, but, like, downtown, uh, the east side of L.A., uh, north towards, like, Echo Park and stuff, like, I've memorized maps of potholes because also at night when you're riding, like, oh, you got to know because sometimes you just see a dark shadow in front of you, and you're like, is that a pothole? Is that just a little bit darker part of the road? I don't want to bend my wheel in half, so I'm just going to guess that it's a pothole I have to dodge. Because if I'm wrong, then there go all of my teeth. Yep. 
And so speaking of uh, pedestrian and or multimodal safety on our roads, uh, this week we had three pedestrians who were killed by cars on the streets of L.A. Uh, These all happened on March 26th, this Tuesday, between 6 in the morning and 9 in the evening. I'm just going to go ahead and quote from L.A. Taco here because they really captured how bleak the situation is. Quote, a 10-year-old boy in Torrance is dead after a pickup driver swerved to avoid hitting a dog. A woman standing at a bus stop in North Hollywood died after a car that ran a red light and hit two other vehicles landed on top of her. And in Westlake, a construction worker was hit while crossing Bonnie Bray to a street vendor before heading to work. The driver who killed him fled. Yeah. And that happens a lot in L.A. About 40 percent of the the traffic collisions result in a hit and run here uh, because there's a good chance you're going to get away. Yeah. So the initial reporting out of 2018 is saying that within the city limits of Los Angeles, 127 pedestrians and 21 cyclists were killed. And this is a this is a slight decrease from last year's numbers, which unfortunately was an increase from the year before that as far as like tracking vision zero deaths and trying to get us to zero like pedestrian fatalities or traffic fatalities. Yeah, we got a uh, ways to go. Yeah, LA is consistently one of the deadliest places places for cyclists in the nation. Uh, I believe last year we had 18 people killed uh, in LA County or no, in the city of LA. In LA County, it was closer to 60. But in Southern California, there's about two cyclists killed every week from here down to the border in, in uh, the Tijuana border crossing. Um, it's a constant stream of people, uh, mainly in South LA is the deadliest place because the roads are wide and big and there's a lot more people riding bikes around without protected bike lanes or bike lanes of any sort. Um, when I talked to Adonia Lugo, we we talked about the fact that you know a place, a neighborhood in South LA or anywhere in LA is beginning to gentrify when you start seeing bike lanes and stuff going there because those bike lanes aren't being installed to protect the residents that live and bike there now. They need that infrastructure now. It's it's laying the groundwork for wealthier people who are going to advocate more for their safety and are willing to pay more for that. And it's a really, really shitty way for us to protect people on the road and to fail to do so. Um, and just this... You know, we're, we're kind of lurching towards Vision Zero. Uh, Garcetti pays some lip service to it, but it's hard to tell that we're making any real progress there. So for a little bit more context on this, um, uh, these deaths that happened on Tuesday were not isolated incidents. Like you said, it's it's a string of pedestrian deaths going across the city that's already been happening this year. For instance, there was a vigil on Sunday where dozens of people gathered to remember a 17-year-old who was killed by a motorist up in the Elysian Valley last late last month. So um, on, on February 27th, Christian Vega was hit by a 2012 Toyota Camry that was making a left turn from Riverside onto Newell Street. Vega was a senior at LAUSD High School, Sotomayor Learning Academies. Uh, City Councilman Mitch O'Farrell, who represents the area where this happened, told the family through a representative that he was unable to attend the memorial on Sunday for Vega and that incensed the community. Quote, Councilmember O'Farrell refuses to calendar a day to meet with the Elysian Valley stakeholders in Elysian Valley as requested, wrote one angered resident in a message to O'Farrell's office during discussions on the Vega Memorial. Quote, we will proceed as a community without the council members' engagement. Yeah, it's it's been a weird one in traffic safety, especially up in that area of the town where uh, CD4 butts up against CD13. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I was talking to John Deutsch last week, and he helped get you know this uh, crosswalk installed at a very busy intersection. It took two years of advocacy to get a crosswalk. And when Ryu uh, came into to office, one of the major complaints is the Rowena Road Diet and people wanting to get it ripped out immediately and him seeming to side with these kind of nimbyish residents who are like, no, we need more space for cars. Like, let's go back in time and remember that 
cars were not, sorry, let's go back in time and remember that streets were not built for cars. No. They were built for people <laughs> and they were built for like horses and other slow and modes carts, of transportation. Like moving goods up and down the street to go to shops. Like yeah. That was their point. The whole jaywalking and traffic deaths are pedestrians' fault was an invention of the car industry because people back when cars were new and were, were a, a causing, you know, traffic deaths were like, hey, maybe we should stop these like gigantic metal beasts from flying around yeah. our city. Maybe we should have them have to wait for pedestrians and stuff and put the onus on drivers to be safe. The car industry went and did a full court press, uh, came up with the term jaywalking, which jay used to be a term for somebody who was like uneducated, a comfy yeah. bumpkin. Like if you're trying to cross a road, you're an idiot if you get hit by a car. Like it's your fault. That is taken uh, on a life of its own. And even in the, the city of, of L.A., you can get ticketed crossing a street if you're crossing it when the little hand is flashing. Like technically a cop could give you a ticket and that seems ridiculous. Except remember LAPD, when they first started their like vision zero enforcement, their plan was to ticket pedestrians in downtown. Yeah. It's not the drivers that they're going after. And having been like a bike messenger and a cyclist in downtown, it's not the cyclists and pedestrians that are causing the problem. It's it's the cars. It's the number of cars. It's the drivers being distracted. It's the fact that there are metal boxes that can accelerate to 60 miles an hour in five seconds, driving around at as high a rate of speed as they can that is literally killing people. And so LAPD was like, well, clearly the grandmother with the stroller. She's yeah, no. the one who needs the ticket. Well, even more fun was they were they were talking about handing out high visibility vests to people if they were caught doing jaywalking and stuff. So actually... Uh, so like a, quick, a scarlet letter, yeah, but in neon green. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the uh, a quick clarification on the jaywalking stuff. I believe that they actually just changed that policy about the jaywalking with the hand flashing. They did, so finally. Now you, if you, as long as you get across all the way... Uh, before it stops flashing, then you're not going to get a ticket. But as a side note of somebody who's been living in downtown for a long time now, uh, they really seem they, they were clamping down really, really hard on the jaywalking, especially on uh, people who were more vulnerable to that. Uh, you know, high school kids, college kids, people of color like that was the target of these tickets, which was horrible. Um, you know, as a white guy walking around, I didn't have to worry about it hardly at all, yeah. it seemed. But now they've really seemed to have stepped back on all of this because they don't want to fight it. And it's like their their word is not just going to be taken as law. Well, they've also made some very slight changes to the way that like traffic lights yeah, work in downtown. Yeah, which is seen, so where, much better. You know, so instead of having the, the light for the cars and the pedestrians change at the same yeah. time, now the pedestrians get two seconds of the walk signal before the cars get a green light. And it's very simple. Simple little changes like that that yeah. change the equation substantially. Uh, there was a big controversy in Arizona, uh, I want to say about a decade or so ago, uh, when it comes to like, because especially my hometown of Paradise Valley uses a lot of speed cameras. Yeah. So they found that if you take uh, the yellow ti- the timing on the yellow light <laughs> and just increase it by a second, you decrease the number of red light accidents by like 50%. So a couple of towns started doing that. And the companies that run the speed cameras and the red light cameras sued them because in oh, the contract, no. the yellow light, the, the yellow light timing is written into the contract. So if you, from a safety and life-saving perspective as a municipality, extend the timing of the yellow light to decrease deaths and collisions, you can get sued by the private company running those cameras because they want revenue. They know that if you increase the amount of time people have to make a decision about their their driving to either go for a light or clear an intersection. That means fewer people running red lights. That means fewer ticket revenues 
news for them, that means they're not making enough money to justify the incredibly expensive and stupid and possibly illegal red light and speed cameras that they're using. They need to not privatize any of this stuff. They need to not privatize anything related to transportation. They need to not privatize everything. It's, um, it's kind of amazing. It's also really painful here in LA where we have so much technological innovation like at our fingertips and yet we're not using it in ways that are very easy to save lives and to get people uh, to uh, not die just going to work. Like imagine if we took that $20 billion that Lyft is going to make from their IPO and used it to reformat our streets or rethink our traffic system or create an actual smart grid for our traffic lights. That would be such a better use than just giving $20 billion to people who are already wealthy. But we're not doing that. Instead, we're starving our municipalities and like our traffic engineers and making them work with the least that they can possibly work with and then saying, geez, I don't know why we're not getting closer to Vision Zero. It's a matter of priorities. It's also a matter of just, you know, seizing the means of production and allowing like Lyft to exist from a national thing where like you can log on to an app and give people rides and get paid for that without having to worry that the greedy effing capitalists are taking, you know, 30% of every ride and are putting the, the burden to maintain the capital on you, like reversing all of the trends of how you're supposed to like uh, understand and evaluate risk. Like it's, I don't know, things are, it's, so easy to fix, it seems like so easy to fix. But at the same time, uh, you know, 127 people died last year and this year, probably more than that. We're talking about two people and change every single week who are losing their lives just in the city of L.A. This doesn't even count unincorporated L.A. Like, Which this is, is so much bigger, too. Yeah, exactly. And like less enforced and less developed in terms of like the infrastructure. Like one of the really the coolest things that they've seen that I've seen happen in the last few years, which as a driver is like, oh, my God, this is the most annoying thing on the planet. But then like you think about it from a pedestrian's perspective and you go, Oh man, that's great. Are those scramble yeah. crosswalks? So like yeah. up and down, uh, right next to MacArthur Park, and um, as you're getting into Westlake area, it's they have a couple of them that are set up and they work so well. Yeah. They also have them over next to USC, which I remember as a student there. That would have been an amazing thing to have had at the yep. entrances. Well, they, they did have that one on crosswalks. Jefferson by the um, no, by that, the, the university that, village that came after. Uh, after I was there anyway. Really? Was yeah. it? Okay. Yeah, okay. That, that was definitely not there yeah. when I was a student. Um, but the, the, the introduction of these things is critical to improving uh, the safety for pedestrians, especially for people who are, you know, uh, less, uh, hand, less capable of walking across the intersections quickly or safely, like people who are stuck in wheelchairs or people who have to use walking aids. Or children. Or children. Like the, and, and there's, there's an amazing Twitter account uh, out there that crossing is talking about Vermont. crossing Vermont. And it's at the, the, the Vermont and uh, Wilshire intersection right next to one of the busiest metro stops uh, on, well, it's the red and purple line. And it, <laughs> that intersection is just an absolute nightmare. And it's, people are constantly blocking the crosswalks. People are constantly running the lights. They're coming real close to hitting all the pedestrians as they're walking across. And I'm really glad that at least somebody is out there video recording uh, on their phone what is happening and just 
uh, publicly shaming, although there's normally not like a license plate in a way to actually publicly shame well, the people. Yeah, for blocking and just pointing out like this is a serious problem. Oh, it's it's and the the scrambles like there's one at at uh, the Walk of Fame at Hollywood and yeah. Vine. Like they work really well, but it's also the problem we have is the the folks that have got uh, gotten hired into LADOT and the state level like transportation bureaucracies are conditioned to think of cars first, and that's always the questions we need that come to up. Change that. No one in the state government is willing to accept lower driving speeds in exchange for safety. So when you talk about reformatting a street and like taking out a lane or slowing drivers down, like, oh, that's going to cause more traffic. It doesn't. They proved that with the Rowena Road diet. Like what causes less traffic is having fewer cars and privileging cars and giving them like the right to go 50 miles an hour on what's a semi-residential street is not going to save any lives. And it's not going to save anybody any time because of induced demand. So this kind of just loops us back to the whole like giving people the ability to drive more doesn't help. And we actually have to be investing in alternative infrastructure, not just making it harder to drive, but making it harder to drive has got to be the first one. And one of the things we can do to stop that from happening is to not allow companies like Lyft to keep siphoning money away and enticing people to get behind the wheel of their car and drive for money because that's the only job they can get. Like all of this stuff is interconnected and they really intricate and yet obvious way. And yet the answers that we're getting from our state and local and federal government are all, there's no other way to do this. And like, yes, there effing is if you have the courage to do this. And this is one of those times if you're out walking around, just think about like, if you could design Wilshire Boulevard, how would you design it? Oh my God. And why does it look nothing like the street that we have? And why are we paying millions of dollars to maintain a broken street like that? And not just in the sense that there's potholes, but in the sense that you can't move down it efficiently, even though it's a major corridor in LA, you can't cross it safely without feeling like you're going to die every couple of blocks. It's not a fun, like sensation to be in a car driving on that street during rush hour, most hours of the day. Our streets can work better. Like I've I've been to other countries and there are streets where people are this able to drive. This is a fixable problem, people. It's very fixable. So, uh, you know, so that's going to kind of round us out towards the end. But I hope this was like sort of interesting and informative as far as like how all this stuff is pulling together and the ways in which these seemingly siloed things like Lyft's IPO and Gavin or Newsom talking about taking away transportation infrastructure <laughs> name is are actually uh, linked together in like really important ways and ways that we can start teasing out. But it's going to have to come in 2020. Like, we really have to start looking for new leadership. We have to start looking for new leadership at every level. CD12 is coming up, and that's going to be a bellwether for how we're going to change the city of LA. But in 2020, we get to reelect half of our city council members. And we, all of our assembly members. Yeah, and all of our Congress people. Yep. And uh, not our governor, unfortunately. We're stuck with <laughs> governor for a little bit. Uh, but there's so many positions up and down the state that are coming up for, for reelection uh, that we get to have like a firm say in. And this doesn't even get into the presidential election. Like, we're not touching that one uh, for a little bit because that one's going to be so effing messy. Bernie 2020, um, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm liking gravel. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, you know, if if I have to the, elect it, if I have absolute to, protest candidate, if I have to elect a Twitter shit poster and it's between Donald it's Trump teams, and Mike man. Gravel, it's going to be the gravel gang all of the way. Uh, but anyways, thank you all very much for uh, for sticking with us this week. Uh, again, if you want to hit us up with anything, uh, podcast at groundgamela.org. Check me out on Twitter. I'm at Bushido Squirrel. 
I'm at Christopher Roth. And uh, as a quick side note, the Green New Deal Road Tour is happening uh, April 26th yep. at the LATTC. You uh, can you can RSVP right now. Yeah. If, uh, if you go to uh, our Facebook page, we got a link up there. That's uh, facebook.com backslash uh, Sunrise Los Angeles. Hell yeah. Ticket sales will be coming live soon, going anywhere from $5 to $50. So if you don't want to pay a lot, we got that option for you. If you're willing to help us out more and help defray uh, some of the costs of the tour, because we are going all the way across the nation, the $50 level is going to be very, very worth it. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you for listening. Uh, As Bushido likes to say, stay angry. Yeah. And uh, stay safe out there. Make sure to cross uh, the street after looking both ways, because Lord only knows which way the traffic is coming. Oh, boy.